Welcome back to Discovery Invest's four-part podcast series on global investing and how to get it right. I'm your host, Bruce Whitfield. Now, when people decide to invest offshore, they're often torn about when to make the move. And is there ever a bad time? Maybe it's a bad time because the round is weak, or maybe it's a good time because it might get weaker. In episode two, we'll be focusing on getting your timing right when increasing your offshore exposure, if indeed there is a right time. And if there's ever an absolutely wrong time. Here to talk us through all of this is Stephen Amy, who heads up Specialist Invest Services at Discovery, and all the way from the lovely island of Jersey, Lindsay Bateman, Director of Business Development at Brooks MacDonald International. One of the great upsides, I think, Lindsay, of the COVID-19 phenomenon is that it doesn't matter where in the world you are, digitally, we're all as connected as can be. It's brilliant. Thank you very much. You're quite right. I've been working from home since April, uh, fully connected to the office, fully connected to our clients, and have the pleasure of chatting to you guys in SA today. So, uh, yes, uh, not many upsides from COVID, but perhaps this could be regarded as, as one one change that will, uh, will will be enduring. I wonder, Lindsay, if, I mean, just the way we communicate now, whether the world is less intimidating, where the world is far more borderless than perhaps it felt in January this year. I couldn't agree more. I think at one stage there was always this massive void and difference between onshore and offshore and talking to investment managers in South Africa and talking to investment managers outside of South Africa. And with the technology we now have have in place, we are talking to our clients every week. We're talking to business partners all the time. And in some way, you know, we used to concentrate a lot on coming out to SA and doing two-week trips, traveling around Joburg, Durban, Cape Town. And it was always quite a big thing and having meetings. And that will continue. But what this has done is it's allowed the relationships to become more normal and more intuitive and uh, dialogue to happen as and when it's required as opposed to wait for these big trips that only used to happen three or four times a year. I wonder, Stephen Amy, if the discussion of onshore versus offshore is even a discussion we should be happening anymore. We're simply investing, and we're investing in the best assets for the best returns over whatever period of time we choose. And, and again, this borderless world that we are very comfortable communicating in right now, perhaps we should have the same ease and the same confidence when it comes to investing. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing locally is investors looking to invest on a global landscape. So prior, you saw a lot of people investing primarily here in South Africa into the local markets. But uh, as time is going on, so you're seeing investors starting to externalize a lot more of their assets. And you've also seen the Reserve Bank starting to relax certain uh, regulations. Your offshore allowance has now been increased to 10 million rand. And over and above that, you've still got your single discretionary allowance of a million rand, allowing investors to take out 11 million rand a year to explore opportunities abroad. Uh, And again, this idea of timing, and it's always a case of it's typical, and I think history will show it to be true, that, you know, when we had big blowouts in the currency in previous cycles, whether it was after 9-11 and the rand weakened and then strengthened back to six to the dollar, as the rand weakens, we see huge interest. And I think uh, Lindsay has seen this phenomenon over the last six to 12 months of South Africans 
panicking about the level of the rand and offshoring as much money as possible. The rand begins to recover, as it does cyclically, and immediately the funds don't dry up, but we see less appetite for offshore investing, Stephen. I mean, is that a pattern that you've noticed over the years? Absolutely, and still today that rains true. You can see it all the time. If you look at the CESA stats, you see exactly what's taking place in the market in general. At this point in time, the banks are sitting on a huge amount of cash. So investors are risk-averse, waiting for the RAND to strengthen relative to your developed market currencies, i.e. the uh, greenback. And as soon as that happens, then what we do see is the deployment of capital into more risky type of assets. Whether this is right or wrong, from my perspective, there's no point in, in trying to time the market. We've seen this. It's an old adage. It's not timing the market. It's time in the market, which uh, generates significant value for investors over time. What patterns, Lindsay Bateman? What sort of patterns do you see? Exactly what Stephen has said. I can fully echo back to you, Bruce. I've been living and working in Jersey for 20 years, in fact, having left Cape Town back in, in 2000. And over that time, I've consistently worked with South African investors looking to invest internationally. And I've done a, a bit of homework on this. And there's a very clear correlation that when the RAND weakens and everyone starts to worry about the domestic economy, that is when people start to look at investing offshore and remitting their money across, of course, at a more expensive relatively uh, time. And when the RAND is strong and the SA economy is thriving and optimism and business confidence is higher, people then start to dismiss offshore as uh, a little bit of a sideshow. So the point that Stephen made and you've made, Bruce, is, is absolutely critical. Trying to time currency and markets and get it all perfect, it's a mug's game. And it's really about making the decision, getting the diversification in place, investing offshore through the right providers, and sitting back and allow things to just run their course. Stephen, South Africa is hardly the epicenter of the global economy. It's a, a tiny little fragment of a very big, very rich and very exciting world. Absolutely, Bruce. South Africa makes up less than 1% of global GDP. If you look at the US, the US contributes around 24% to global GDP. China, north of 16%. And then throughout Europe, also about 17%. So, you know, we are relatively small in the greater scheme of things. And therefore, opportunities outside of our borders are immense. I mean, there's some really good reasons as to why we should be looking at global diversification. I mean, it is by and large about preserving global purchasing power as South Africans on a regular earnings basis. We are poorer now than we were five years ago, simply as a result of a very dramatic depreciation in the currency. Who knows which way it goes into the future? But the point is that history shows us that there is a fairly average depreciation in the rand at the inflation rate. So whether that be three, four, five, six percent a year that average holds true absolutely now what we have seen over the last five years is that the dollar has appreciated against the rand by over 22 percent so talking to this exact point so i think you know from our side is investors need to preserve you know their their wealth on a global perspective you can't just factor in the rand china which has obviously been rearing over the last couple of years and is continuing to move forward in terms of their economic growth numbers and then obviously into europe it has its own uh, you know problems with brexit etc but in general there are a huge amount of opportunities outside of our borders and if you look at a portfolio and you add in offshore exposure into a portfolio it's actually interesting because even with 
the volatility of the rand. What you do see over time, especially over you know the five-year number, is you see the risk-adjusted returns in the actual portfolio improve, irrespective of the volatility with the actual rand. And as I mentioned, it's really about the actual term of the investment. So the investment horizon is key. When investing abroad, investors typically need to focus on a five-year plus investment horizon. Anything earlier than that, you could run into difficulties with the fluctuation in the rand. The rand does, as I alluded to earlier, depreciate against developed market currencies over time. But during the cycle, you might find the RAND strengthening and weakening. And that is what we see when we have investors trying to time the market. But at the end of the day, if you're looking for better risk-adjusted returns, one needs to look outside of the borders of South Africa and introduce international assets into your portfolio. And Lindsay, it's as simple as saying, will I have international expenses one day? Well, you may or may not know the answer to that question. You don't know how smart your kids really are, what sort of university courses they're going to do, whether those courses are going to be applicable in South Africa, or if they'll want to study in South Africa, if you'll even be in South Africa in five or 10 years time, or whether you would have gone and come back. You know, the world is a very flexible and movable space. It's a case of simply diversifying because it's a sensible thing to do. The fact that 99.2% of the global economy is outside of South Africa should be reason enough, regardless of the level of the currency. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. And that's a key driver of South Africans investing offshore. Currency is certainly a factor, and it's hedging against weakening of the rand. But equally, to allow South African clients to easily access international markets is, is key. And the U.S. is, is a, an extremely popular market for our South African investors, as is the U.K., of course, and as a Central Europe. And a lot of people are investing, A, and to echo what Stephen said, you need to invest with a, at least a three- to five-year time horizon, and five years plus uh, is, 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 is ideal. Many clients do invest because they do expect that at some point they may want to buy a property in the U.K., or, as you mentioned, children to university. Um, they may just want to hedge against the rand and properly diversify the wealth. But bottom line, investing offshore creates options. And even when I mentioned, and Stephen mentioned, the five-year time horizon, if you select your providers carefully, most retain liquidity. So we do occasionally have South African clients that say, Lindsay, I've had an unexpected problem. I need to bring back X amount back into South Africa. Not an issue, no penalties, and the money comes back. But I, I think often... South Africans look at offshore as if it's a different type of investing to onshore. And in fact, these days with the products and capabilities available, onshore and offshore, the style of investing is not necessarily all that different. The structure of investing is not necessarily all that different. But of course, it's giving you access to the, the huge, large global markets. And that is the point. I mean, is it possible to be too diversified? I mean, you, one could go and buy an MSCI Global Markets Index, and that'll give you an exposure to 100 different stock markets around the world. Is that too much diversification? Because so often people say, well, you, know, you really need to invest offshore. Well, offshore includes Swaziland and Lesotho. It includes, <laughs> yes. you know, what is offshore when we talk about offshore? I think, Lindsay, that's a good question for you, because it's a very big and often quite intimidating place. Absolutely. And again, what you don't want is a case where you're just exposed to everything and anything that happens to be international. And different providers will have different type of products and different type of services. So a popular route is look at the client's risk profile, of course, by working with local advisors and determine is it a dollar orientation or a sterling orientation or a euro orientation. 
And then we would tend to focus on a mix of equities and bonds in markets that we fully understand, that we are fully engaged in, and then select a properly diversified portfolio for the client that isn't actually a calling all pockets type of portfolio. And of course, it's actively managed. So if we see that opportunities today are more in healthcare and more in tech, then we will manage the portfolio to skew and tilt it towards those particular sectors. Whereas, of course, if you invest in the tracker, A, it's passive. There's no active management typically taking place. And B, it is across the whole spread of the market. And if you look, for example, at the NASDAQ, if you take out most of the tech stocks, the NASDAQ is negative year to date. So you need managers that can recognize within this huge universe of opportunity where the real opportunities lie and manage and structure the portfolio accordingly. Stephen, Amy, does a life stage matter? Obviously, the younger you are, the better it is. The younger you are, the more money you can throw at the investing world, the better off you're going to be in the long term. But um, is it ever too late? That's a very valid question in terms of how much do you invest, how much risk does one take on based on your investment horizon. So the younger you are, typically you have a longer investment horizon. And the older you are, you tend to be more risk averse as your investment horizon reduces. What's interesting just on risk tolerance is that we do find old investors investing more aggressively and younger investors tending to be a lot more risk averse. And a study that uh, was recently conducted in terms of risk tolerance It actually showed that if you're in a positive frame of mind, you tend to be willing to take on more risk. So you favor investments more. When your emotions are negative, we've just been through COVID. So typically people would feel down, especially during the first couple of months of the lockdown. And what you do find there is as a result of your emotional state, it talks to behavioral finance and investing, which is a separate you know, discussion altogether. But that definitely has an impact on the way individuals actually invest. So we see that all of the time as well. So irrespective of your risk profile and what you should be doing, often what happens is behavioral biases impact individuals' investment decisions. But going back to your question, Bruce, in terms of what you should be doing, you should start to accumulate assets as young as possible. I think that's the question, irrespective of where markets are. I think getting into the market's important, and then you're going to benefit from what many have coined the eighth wonder of the world, and that's compounding interest. So get into the market, whether it's via a lump sum, when you are typically younger and in your accumulation phase, you don't have the uh, buying power that you would typically have after you've accumulated wealth over several years. So there, there are many investment opportunities in the marketplace where you can invest on a regular basis and benefit from what we call rand cost averaging. And that is to take advantage of price declines in the marketplace, okay, and not to be as impacted by price increases in the marketplace over time. So you can get into the market and invest on a, on a regular basis via recurring type of investment for as little as $200 a month, and you can invest abroad on the back of that. So my advice would be to invest sooner rather than later, diversify your geographic exposure, gain exposure to some of the largest and well-known companies in the world, Netflix, Alibaba, Alphabet being Google, etc., and do that sooner rather than later. 
The moment you tell me that, I start getting worried about valuations because I overthink this stuff. So we've seen market crashes and we've seen market disasters and we've seen those disasters inevitably occur at points in the cycle where pricing has gone completely and utterly bananas. The the risk here, of course, when it comes to investing is you follow trends, but you get on the trend bus at the last possible bus stop and you end up getting caught with your trousers down, unfortunately. Absolutely. And it talks again to you know what we said in, in the beginning of this podcast, and that is timing the market. I was actually having a look at some research that was recently done. Bruce, you'll find this fascinating as an investor yourself, that if you look at the best performing stocks of the century, had you invested $100 US in 2000, okay, your $100 today, had you invested in Monster Energy Drink, would be worth a massive 62,444 US dollars today. But you didn't tell me to do it then. And that's the trouble with this blooming great idea. I know, but Bruce, I'm going to get to that, right? Netflix would have been worth $23,000. But, you know, some other research that was done by a large asset manager talking to exactly this. When do you get into the market? Because typically what people do is hindsight bias. So what you do is you look at what happened in the past and you think this is going to repeat itself, you know, for many investors and you jump back into the market hoping that these type of returns will return and you'll benefit from these over time. Now, often that doesn't necessarily happen and one should not be focusing in the rear of your mirror. But if you look at the study that I was alluding to just now, it was conducted by Fidelity Investments. And what they found is they looked at investments over the last 28 years, Bruce. And had you invested 10,000 US dollars okay, in 1980 and remained invested in the markets irrespective of what we've seen throughout the market cycle. So taking out all these black swan events, COVID included, okay, the value of your investment would have been or would be today 708,000 rand. If you simply missed the best five performing days out of that entire period, your investment would be worth 458,000 US dollars. That is 35% less talking to timing the market. And this goes on if you miss the best 10 and best 30 and best 50 days. So it goes back to what we initially said, Bruce, and that is to get into the market and remain invested over time. And that's the point, Lindsay, isn't it? I mean, it is about duration and it is about sticking in markets. I mean, we can use all kinds of statistics and I love statistical analysis of these things because there was a point in 2017 where one of the big international research houses looked at the best performing stock markets in the world between 1917 and 2017. And then they looked at them from 1900 to 2017. And in both cases, which was the best performing stock market in the world, Lindsay? Uh, the US, I would imagine. You see, that is the great assumption and uh, everyone would make. But actually, uh, over 117 years, the JSE was best. Goodness. Um, the Australian stock market was second and the US market was third. Now, I have no doubt that that has turned on its head yeah. since then because um, the JSE, of course, has gone nowhere. Um, uh, but it, it's these things. So looking back is fascinating. But does it give us an indication of the future? The only indication it gives of the future is if you believe that markets are a logical long-term investment, that regardless of what happens on a day-to-day basis, by remaining invested, as Stephen says, you will capitalize on every decline and every increase that we see in portfolio values over time. Absolutely. Again, we've stressed this throughout and uh, it's been mentioned more than once. Clients do need to invest understanding that 
it is a five-year-plus type of time horizon. And often, you know, I'll say to a client, you don't value your house every day. I think part of the problem is that we, as most firms, people can see the valuations online 24-7. So they see a headline in the newspaper and think, wow, what's that done to my portfolio? Have a look, and the portfolio may have fallen by 2% in the last two days or something. And start to say, should I redeem? Should I get out? Is this a, a negative trend? And really, the investors that succeed best in terms of diversification offshore, place the money offshore, get the evaluations once a quarter, keep an eye on it, but basically let it run its course. And if you're going to start looking at it every day and sweating the small stuff and reacting to every headline, that will make your life as an investor pretty torrid and pretty difficult. And of course, the good clients will look at it see the benefits, and if they remain comfortable, as most do, they can top it up as well as time goes on. And over time, that portfolio offshore can become a very, very powerful part of the overall portfolio. And it is about understanding the power, not only of compounding, the power of time, but the power of persistence and consistency. Absolutely. And I think that is the most important aspect here. Stephen, who should not invest offshore? Because there is a case to be made for not doing it. This isn't for everybody. No, it's not for everybody. So, Bruce, it's a, it's a very good question, you know, in terms of not investing offshore because local investors can still get exposure to offshore assets by investing in local unit trust funds. I think that's important. So local unit trust funds can invest a portion of the assets into offshore counters. So you can get indirect exposure through your local unit trust. That's the first thing. And then, you know, those that are looking to take money and externalize that, I think that's the question here. You should not be taking money abroad if you've debt laden here in South Africa. We've got a population of about 55, 60 million people, of which half of the population utilizes credit extensively. Of that half, 50% are way behind in their debt repayments. So focus on servicing your local debt first before you decide to externalize assets. I think that's the most important thing here. The second thing is, again, going back to that investment horizon. If you have a short-term investment horizon, being one to three odd years, or perhaps less than five years, then you should remain invested in South African-based assets. And liquidity is another question. Your access to your capital, how readily do you require that capital? If you require it to service other purchases that you foresee in the next 12 to 18 or 24 months, you might be getting married or you might be looking to buy a house, you should certainly not be looking to externalize assets and then to redeem those to service local purchases. So I think those would be the three primary points, Bruce. Do you see, Lindsay, people sort of having buyer's remorse? They go out at 10 to the dollar and suddenly the rand's at 6 to the dollar and they go, oh, it was a terrible idea. I'm going to take my money out. They then buy back their rand's at 6 to the dollar and it goes to 10 and they then go offshore once again. I mean, do you see any of that haphazard activity? I would hope not. Bruce, we, we see it by exception. And often I, I worry that perhaps those clients didn't fully appreciate the implications of investing offshore, the requirement to look at it with a long-term time horizon and so on. Uh, we see it very, very rarely. I mean, what, what, was, what is always unfortunate is, for example, um, an individual could have invested January, February this year, came into the markets with a long-term time horizon, COVID happened, March, April happened, and suddenly their investment is worth less than what the original amount was that they initially invested. And that's a tough one. And, and that's where clients sometimes need a little bit of support and guidance and say, you know, you did invest for three to five years. It's unfortunate that there's been this sharp downturn in the market within weeks of you investing. Uh, and that's painful. But 
Let's stick with the original intention. Let's stick with the original plan. And happily, of course, as we can see when we look back at the last six, eight months, clients stayed through this very, very difficult period. We saw the sharp sell-off at the end of March. And today, of course, markets are in a far better place in a far better position. And most of those losses, if not all, have been fully regained. So, you know, it really is so important. As Stephen's mentioned, I've mentioned, you have to look at that longer-term mindset. But if something happens and the money needs to come back, it can do. But you don't want to invest expecting that to happen. And that's the thing. Life does happen. I mean, you may have had a a great financial plan and it may have required you to continue having an income and suddenly your income dried up, you got sick and you couldn't work for three or four months uh, as a result of post-COVID exhaustion or whatever the case might be because lots of people have got sick, let's be honest about it. And you've got to be prepared. You've got to have sufficient liquidity to carry you through. It is all about having the holistic financial plan. It's the sort of boring bit we've people's eyes glaze over but you'd need to have the emergency fund in place you need to understand that you can go for you know five or six months without an income and you could survive that sort of environment and once you've got a level of liquidity Stephen, then you can start thinking about removing money from south africa or any long-term money frankly putting it away for long-term growth spot on bruce and i think Lindsay made a very very good point what we see often is almost opportunistic type of investing where you know, investors want this immediate gratification, let's put some money into Bitcoin and let's see, you know, if we can spin that roulette wheel and try and make a quick buck, that's fantastic. And that's what we see a lot of the time. But people need to focus on their end objective. What are they trying to achieve? You need to have an investment policy statement, a strategy that is designed to achieve certain investment outcomes. I think that's very, very important. And that encompasses everything that you've alluded to as well, Bruce, talking about an emergency fund. You need to ensure that you've got three to six months worth of savings set aside for those dark, ugly, rainy days. We've seen what happened now in COVID. Many entrepreneurs were out of work for several months. They had to rely on what they had saved up. And hopefully that money was sitting in risk-averse assets such as money market and fixed income type of investments so they could draw from those particular assets. Once you've got that in place, you need to obviously focus on the ultimate investment objective. What are you trying to achieve? Maybe it's a retirement objective. How much do you require at retirement? What is your net replacement ratio? What do you require at retirement to live on for the remainder of your life? Are you saving adequately towards that? Are there other objectives in terms of maybe there's a house that you're saving towards or a wedding or any other life event that you're saving towards? You need to take this all into consideration. And that's where qualified investment advisor or financial advisor comes in to sit and give you guidance in terms of doing the right things by you for you. I think that's very, very important. Taking all of these facets into account and factoring what is required and then holding your hand through the process because life happens and things that we plan for might not necessarily materialize over time. So you need that qualified investment advisor to stand by you and guide you and almost protect yourself from yourself because often what we see, Bruce, is that investors are their own worst enemies. Absolutely. And this analysis paralysis thing, Lindsay, which I'm sure you face a lot of the time. There's so many possibilities that you can paralyze yourself with. It's about simply looking at the long term and saying there will be crazy, planes will crash, storms will happen, maniacs will run countries on and off from time to time. But one has to understand that ultimately, logic prevails, good common sense prevails, the the capitalist system as it is designed is pretty robust and pretty resilient. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. And I mean, a quick comment, there are other offshore jurisdictions as well 
that one could consider. I'm biased because I'm sitting here talking to you from my home uh, in, in Jersey right now. But Jersey has been an offshore center for years and years and years, completely independent. It is not part of the EU. It is a protectorate of Britain, but it has we have our own government, our own currency, our own laws. And that has been the case certainly for as long as one wants to look back. So bottom line is when people invest offshore, if they select a quality, stable jurisdiction, that will give them a lot of added comfort because as all these things take place, you know, the US elections, Brexit, the EU, Jersey is quite well positioned to sit and continue to operate in the independent manner and protect its clients and protect its financial services business, which is, you know, the dominant economy within the island. That's Lindsay Bateman, Director of Business Development at Brooks MacDonald International, and Stephen Amy, who heads up Specialist Invest Services at Discovery. Thank you for joining us and helping us understand that there is no need to agonize about timing our global investment perfectly, just getting started, full stop. And of course, staying invested for the medium to long term is what really counts. Now, if that's got you wondering about whether increasing your offshore exposure is something that you should prioritize, find your way to the Offshore Investing Info Hub on discovery.co.za, where you can learn a lot more about fundamental principles and important considerations to help you maximize on the long-term benefits of investing abroad.